I'm Jacob Heilbrunn, the editor of The National Interest. And my guest today is David Para, an expert on technology and artificial intelligence and software. My first question today is going to be based on an article that he recently wrote for The National Interest, focusing on software and the threat that we face from China. I wanted to ask David first, what is the principal problem that America faces in the defense technology arena? Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, a great place to start because I obviously give this a lot of thought in terms of what, who are our greatest adversaries and how they're going to be coming after us. You know, as a company that provides uh, software to the defense industrial base, as well as to the people serving our country, we think a lot about, well, what is the best way to deploy technology and who are we deploying it against? And, you know, the easy answer is always, well, think about nation state actors like Russia or China. And of course we see these asymmetric conflicts around the world, uh, either through the nation state itself or state sponsored actors. But I fundamentally believe the, the biggest threat is the complacency that we have toward solving the core problems of privacy and security, we seem to refuse to learn the lessons of the past uh, in terms of how insiders can go after information, how we have to adopt zero trust principles to cybersecurity as opposed to the tired and proven unreliable approaches to creating things like secure networks and you know trusted supply chains and all manner of other things that are fine in principle but ultimately don't provide any real sense of privacy and security. And, and, and as you know, you just watch the news, you can see in, in all the conflicts going around the world, people compromising systems, just 23andMe, right? Did you see that that post, uh, you know, they got hacked and all that sensitive information on individual, genetic sensitive information on individuals get leaked out there. That's just the tip of the iceberg and it keeps happening because we are playing on the terms of the adversaries and we have to fundamentally change the game. So I've, I really do think it's the attitude we take and are sticking with the old ways of fighting that is the, really the biggest threat to our future. That actually leads nicely to my next query for you, Dave, which is how do we up our game? What kind of software revolution do you believe Washington needs to promote? Uh, I love that because I think there's two parts of your question. One is software, not hardware. <laughs> now we're not against hardware. Without you know, without hardware, there is no software, right? But ultimately, especially in the defense and intelligence community, there is this reliance on not just hardware, but building custom bespoke hardware to very narrowly defined missions. And the problem with that is it's very hard to adapt to new adversaries and new threats. And basically, as you can see, just in your own career and your personal life, the versatility of having a general purpose computer being able to run all manner of software and have that software updated constantly is something that is still largely missing from the defense industrial base. But specific to your question of privacy and security and threats to our our country, it's basically we need to adopt zero trust. Now, this is a concept that is well known in cybersecurity circles, but it's just simply defined as 
rather than assuming you can create a safe place for um, data to live and for computing to take place, we should design applications with threats in mind and that they need to protect themselves. And we can't make assumptions that our admins can't be compromised or their accounts can't be compromised or that our network can't be compromised. We should build with the assumption that the attack surface is large and can be compromised and therefore we shouldn't make assumptions around the trustworthiness of all the people and things we use to communicate and share information hence where the phrase zero trust comes from now i've seen a lot of positive movement especially around the executive orders for zero trust and it's slowly being pushed out through the defense industrial base but honestly especially for a company like spider oak that's focused on the intersection of space and cybersecurity there's very little movement, let alone requirements being floated out there for zero trust. And it's really just getting started in more of the traditional defense and intelligence community. So we have a long way to go. And zero trust is probably the easiest answer to your question of the biggest thing that we can do to really advance our safety and security. Dave, in your piece for the national interest, which ran in late September, called Defense Gaps with China Can Be Closed with Commercial Software, you focused heavily on space. Can you explain in a bit more detail, maybe a basic question, but why do you think that space is such an important frontier right now? Uh, you know, think about all the things that we rely on. Well, we don't, we as consumers think about space is already a big part of our critical infrastructure and powering our lives, but we we often overlook the ubiquitous service of not just GPS, but all the companies and services we consume that rely heavily on images and data and communications that are powered by and made possible only through the commercial and, and military space networks. But beyond the commercial and the consumer you know, implications of space, so much of really how we're going to be protecting ourselves in the future is going to be in space, whether it's signals and intelligence or getting information where it needs to go to people in far-flung places, you know, especially in a world of, of asymmetric warfare, the people who can get information the fastest and most reliably have a huge advantage. You can do a lot of damage if you can precisely place effects based on real-time validated information but you know counterintuitively the only way that's going to be happening is by leveraging commercial networks commercial devices such as smartphones commercial routers and therein lies the conundrum if we want real-time information that's resilient against attack we need to rely on a mix a hybrid approach if you will of commercial and uh, defense assets. At the same time, how can you trust anything to reliably transit those networks without being detected or modified or intercepted? So it's this kind of dual approach of we must leverage the commercial sector and the assets and services in space that are needed to power you know, warfare in the future. But we need the technology to ensure that what we're saying can be detected and that information is being reliably transmitted without modification. So it's is dual-edged sort of you all. David, you are CEO of Spider Oak, which is a space cybersecurity company. And I wonder, based on your 
experience in your position. How well do you think that the Pentagon itself is adapting to these new challenges? You know, change is slow. We often think like, well, it's so easy just to, well, just make a new policy, right? Well, listen, Pentagon is a large organization. As any organization, whether governmental or, you know, commercial, change is hard, right? Especially if the things that we used to do are successful. And there's no better example of an industry than the space economy where people really stick with, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So you see a lot of reliance on technology created in the, and I'm not exaggerating, the 80s and 90s to protect space or just assume that space, because it is in some cases literally far away, i.e. in orbit, uh, that you know what could possibly happen? This is a far-flung asset, uh, so what could possibly go wrong? Don't put anything on there that could mess with getting it up into orbit and communicating with it reliably. So... Whereas we have begun to see executive orders and policies and requirements just starting to roll out in the larger uh, DOD uh, ecosystem vis-a-vis the CIO's office and executive orders around zero trust, that is not happening in space. I mean, if you look at the requirements around new constellations that are being put up, new ground stations, secure methods for moving uh, information and sensor data from satellites to warfighters and analysts. Just the phrase zero trust is kind of absent from the conversation. So if we want to see progress, we need to start putting in end-to-end security and zero trust requirements in there. And we are just beginning to see that. So on a positive note, you know, we're working uh, with the Space Development Agency on a small project looking at, yeah, again, space cybersecurity and looking at if there are any gaps and seams in order to power that system and use that as an exemplar for other future constellations that Space Force and the other branches are looking to deploy. So there is an openness to the conversation and people are willing to fund experiments, but we're not seeing Zero Trust as a mainstream program of record requirement for the next generation of space systems, whether those be satellites, ground stations, or other networks. And that needs to change. So that could, in fact, be a significant vulnerability? Oh, absolutely. Just take a look at just the your email server, just to keep, keep it. No, even a better example, texting on your phone. Traditionally, if the government were tasked with, well, we need to enable secure messaging between individuals, what would be the approach? Let's make a custom device uh, and a custom network, and we'll call it a high side network, and we'll only let you know people with you know clearances access that network, and we're going to monitor it and restrict access to it, and have admins also with clearances be, you know monitoring the system and ensuring that nothing bad is happening. Think of what the opposite of that. So, do you use? Um, any secure messaging on your phone, like WhatsApp or Signal or similar kind of applications for secure messaging? Sure. I mean, yeah. mo- most people in this field do. Yeah. Well, that approach is the complete opposite of the way defense would traditionally challenge. Yeah. It's like, forget the supply chain. You can't trust your cellular you know, provider. You certainly shouldn't trust the cellular provider of the person you're talking with. How are those networks connected together? 
How can you know that that data is not being intercepted? The answer is who cares? The way that these applications are designed is they assume no trust. They assume that everyone and everything between you and your colleague is and can and will be compromised. And yet you must enable secure communication. The zero trust approach assumes that you can't truth trust anyone or anything except the endpoints at best. So ultimately that approach leads to insider attacks, supply chain attacks, meaning, well, can the admin of the system whose job really isn't to do anything other than make sure your network is up and running, should they have coincidental, accidental and instant access to all of your content? That's kind of crazy. Or should the manufacturer of the cell tower or the maker of the chips for the servers where these messages pass through, should they have access to this content as well? I mean, ultimately, we invest and we continue to invest in these kind of outdated notions of secure supply chain and secure IT admins when we just proven time and time again that that is not going to work. And I don't know what it's going to take to show folks that we need to take a complete different approach against these repeated attacks and vulnerabilities. I also wanted to talk a little about foreign affairs and national security itself. I have two questions for you. And the first one centers on the Ukraine war. What are the implications and lessons of that war for software and national security? We read a lot of articles and opinion pieces about how the Ukrainians are extremely inventive on the ground and how significant, for example, Starlink is. What's what's your assessment of the Ukraine war? Well, with regards to uh, security and leveraging assets, look, asymmetric warfare is the crucible for unconventional, you know, solutions, right? Yeah. You know, (laughs) What is it? Uh, necessity is the, the mother of invention. And, and that's never made more clear than just the recent experience of the Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict. Look, uh, when you can't just use overwhelming force, you need to leverage assets. And which assets are the ones that uh, the Ukrainians are leveraging? Commercially available devices and networks to provide highly precise and real-time information to precisely place effects where they need to be. As opposed to, well, let's just move a bunch of troops in this location, they do what they do, right? So ultimately, the future of these types of asymmetric conflicts is you're definitely going to have one side, if not both sides, heavily reliance on commercial networks, tools, devices, you know, the smartphone that you use to talk to your family is the same smartphone placing effects over the same wireless network on a drone that someone bought for recreational purposes, right? So ultimately that real-time signals and intelligence that can be provably, you know, on and it cannot be intercepted nor modified I think it's proven to be a very frustrating element for you know, the Russian forces. Now, I think you can take that analogy and think about, and if this is the early days of the, of the Israeli-Hamas um, conflict, but look, when there's any asymmetry in, in a conflict, the other side's gonna get creative and utilize these assets. That, that provides both an opportunity and a challenge. 
right? So the opportunity is that you're utilizing assets in a new and creative way and the enemy is not prepared to, to handle that. But it is only a matter of time once if you realize that your enemy is completely reliant upon commercial networks and commercial solutions to power the conflict and you have the ability to disrupt those elements that's when you need zero security so the perfect you know microcosm of this is yes the ukrainians were utilizing you know starlink and other assets in the conflict for both communications and signals and intelligence and that's why Russia took out a, a Viasat ground station, because once the enemy realizes that you're utilizing a practically unprotected commercial asset, they're going to take it out. And notice they didn't have to go to a satellite. They just took out the weak link in the chain. As I, as I like to say, yeah, Brinks has armored trucks with armed guards that brings cash to banks with steel vaults. But guess where all the thefts happen? On the street. When the guard literally opens up the truck and puts all the cash on a furniture dolly, right? And the equivalent and then rolls it into the bank. That is the state of our commercial and military, you know, satellite systems. I wanted to to push back with my final question, which I think is is the most treacherous for you to to handle. Um, okay. When we look at the Israeli-Hamas conflict or war, if you will, we see what a lot of people are saying is sort of another 9-11 or worse, you know, a 9-11 guys with box cutters overwhelmed the American national security state. Now here, Israel, which has been called, you know, the high-tech nation, probably has, what, more startups per square foot than any country in the world, got nailed, got, you know, it it had formed kind of what looks like a Maginot line against the Gaza Strip. These guys, you know, shut down the cell communication. They took bulldozers. Can a nation, in fact, become too dependent on high tech? I like how you asked the high tech CEO whether the nation should become dependent on technology. I just, I just I'm just interested in how you respond to that, because there's a lot of, yeah, know, there's a lot of a lot of people are saying that, you know, the Israelis got overconfident. They became too reliant on technological, what they perceived as a technological solution to this problem on the ground. Yeah, look, uh, first of all, in the very early days of not just the conflict, but the causes and what could or could not have been detected. So I'm not and I have no you know, insights beyond, you know, what you and, and everyone else you know knows so that that'll be the first thing i'll say about it i think in general philosophically you know even as the ceo of a, of a tech company ultimately a company is nothing without its people and so what do i do i make sure that they have the tools they need so they can do the things that only uniquely that uniquely people can do right so ultimately is there are there a lot of advances in ai absolutely Security, absolutely. Tools uh, for detection, analysis. At the end of the day, uh, these conflicts are about people, both the causes and the solutions, right? So ultimately, yeah, I do think that we can't just, and nor is anyone suggesting that this is what happened, but we can't just turn over everything to like, oh, I have a technical shield, so therefore I, I don't have anything to worry about. Like even, you know, 
we're trusted around the world to provide solutions that are almost, you know, unassailable in terms of, you know, privacy and security and what we provide for our customers, you know, since 2007. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean we're perfect. And it ultimately comes down to people are the last mile, if you will. And any sort of conflict, whether it's a cyber attack or a kinetic, you know, in the real world attack. And so I'm, I'm always a big advocate of the blending of technology and people. And you can't just have a one, you know, stop shop, easy button uh, against conflict and protection for, um, you know, any conflict. I, I do like to say, like, like, you can put the most sophisticated alarm system on your house. But if you just leave the key out, you really haven't done anything, right? At the end of the day, it's the human element, and it's up to people to to be the safeguards of their privacy, security, and safety. So that's that's how I think about it. That's a great answer, and I'm very appreciative to you, David, for joining us today. I was speaking with David Para, an MIT-trained computer engineer who is CEO of Spider Oak a space cybersecurity company. And David recently wrote, Defense Gaps with China Can Be Closed with Commercial Software, which is on our National Interest website. David, thank you very much for joining me, and I very much enjoyed the conversation. I did as well. Thanks, Jacob.